Um, my boat got hit by lightning two years ago. My whole electric, electronic system was crispy afterwards, and I bought a high-end electronics package out of Portland, Oregon, where the manufacturer is. Had problems with it, couldn't get one component to work for two years. I get a, been working with them, I've got about 40 hours in coding this one line. I get a text message, it says, where are you? So I'm like, I'm on the boat. You know, I mean, what do you think? The guy came to this island to do the trawler fest just down the road here. We got in touch and he said, right, I'll be there at 7 a.m. in the morning. He was the architect behind the system. There was no way anyone else could fix it except him. After that, we're able to have breakfast because it's 7 a.m. You know, coffee, you're there, you get breakfast. After that, we're able to pray for him because he has a bad back. I had no concept that God could organize somebody from Portland, Oregon, on this island to fix a coding problem and then give us the opportunity to pray. So God works in ways we don't get. And some days he organizes things from the opposite side of a continent to help out one of his kids. Amen. So the Eddie translation on that would be that if God wants you to pray with somebody at breakfast, he may hit your electric system on your entire boat with, a, with lightning. And if you see it from God's perspective and you are patient, you will come to that conclusion. And that's a great reason to rejoice. Amen, brother? Which is kind of what we'll be talking about today is how conflict should cause us to look more like Christ. But so we don't have too many more conflicts. We're going to let the kids go. <laughs> and, uh, and you guys heading back with Terry and Fernanda. Terry always has donuts. So uh, if you guys, you got them today? All right, good, good. <laughs> so if you're an adult and you want donuts, you can go down there. But I'm just telling you, you may come back running back up here. So, all right, very good. Um, yeah, that's what we're going to be talking about today and as we continue in the book of Acts is that conflict should cause us to look more like Christ. There's nothing that comes in our life that's, that's on accident. It's all by God's design. And, and every time I go out to the islands, out on the boat, um, uh, those of you who've been out on the islands with me, out on the boats, do you, you guys have seen the beautiful driftwood, have you not? Man, especially out on some of the islands we're out on now, we have Bible study. Um, there's just these beautiful uh, Australian pine trees that have been knocked over, and it's almost like walls, literally. There's walls, and, you, and if you uh, want to, you can just sit there and look and stare at the intricacy of what God did to the roots as he knocked it over with a hurricane, and as the wind and the water and the waves have tried to destroy it, but instead of destroying it, it's only made it look more beautiful. And so I want you to think of the conflict that had to happen. Dude, you know what it took to knock one of those Australian pines down? What I just told you, what did it take? 
It took a hurricane. And a hurricane, man, blew it over. And then over the years, or actually over the months since the hurricanes blew it over this past summer, and if we cut them all up for driftwood, by the way, there'll be more hurricanes, and we'll have more driftwood next, next year. All right? Just comforting thought for those who own property on the island. That's a barrier island. All right. So anyways, I had to knock it over. The wind and the water and, and, and the sands all trying to destroy it, but instead it made it more beautiful. And that's what God's trying to do through us. Everything that comes in our life uh, I love it that we call a conflict is there for a purpose. How would you even define conflict? Charlotte, I'm picking you on you right now because I know how much you love to speak in public. But, man, how, how would you define a conflict? Perfect answer. I did not brief her on that, all right? I was so open, man. But, yeah, a conflict is anything that didn't go the way you wanted to go, right? Uh, would you all agree to that? Yeah, Charlie, go ahead. This might not go with what you said. That's okay, man. You preach anyways, but, but I'll pick up. I'm I have ADD to anyway. tell everybody here, the Holy Spirit is over everybody here every Sunday. I'm telling you, I've been to a lot of churches in my life, and this is the best church in your life. It is the best. Amen. Guy there has the Holy Spirit in him, and there's quite a few other people here. It is so beautiful here. I can't. I can't. I don't have the words to express how beautiful this is here. I have no conflict with that. <laughs> You know, somebody, uh, there's a guy, uh, uh, one of the pastors that I like listening to, a guy named Francis Chan, and what he, one thing he said uh, in really looking at the New Testament church, he said, what a church should be known for is love. And, um, and, and that's kind of what he said, and I'm, I'm honored that that's what this church is known for. And it's because, not because there's no conflict, it's just that you guys see conflict from God's perspective. And, we, and, and God's Holy Spirit will turn it into something Super positive, something there's benefit in it, including getting your sailboat struck by lightning. <laughs> how many? How long ago was that again? Three. Yeah, three years. <laughs> okay, so you've seen the materialization of that three years later. So, anyways, conflict is supposed to cause us to look more like Christ. And conflict again is really nothing more than when things don't go the way we had them planned. Anybody have that happen this week? at all and, yeah and and so man we have to take this conflict and we have to see it from god's perspective and it's doing that we are then able to share that same perspective with others when they have conflict how many of you have needed some encouragement from another believer to be able to see what's going on in your life from god's perspective to see it's good we need each other and we're going to talk about that so I was going to tell you what God gave me was some random thoughts about conflict, some random thoughts, but they're not random at all. They go together perfect with the passage of scripture that we're going to look at. And uh, so let's go ahead and let's get started. But I want you guys to remember this. Everybody read this with me. Conflict should cause us to what? All right. One more time. Conflict should cause us to? That's it, man. So remember that conflict's there to make us look more like Christ. All right. Uh, the first thing uh, we're going to see in this passage here is that this is really deep, guys. All right. So this is just super deep stuff. One year olds left by themselves will not become two year olds. 
How many of y'all agree with that? <laughs> if, if a one-year-old is left by themselves, uh, uh, man, isn't it awesome? There's uh, Code and Katie and uh, little Codette. I know it's Ryder, but I, told, I haven't had a chance to call him Codette for a long time. But man, if you leave him by himself, what's he going to put in his mouth? Yeah, everything. Does he discern whether it's good, bad, or indifferent? No, you have to teach him that. Hey, yours is now what, three years old, right? And, and so uh, if you leave him by himself, what's he going to put in his mouth? He's getting better. <laughs> but everything, almost everything, all right? He, doesn't have, he has a little more discernment than Ryder does. Um, you leave me by myself, what am I going to put in my mouth? <laughs> That's not even fair. <laughs> I'm at least going to try it, all right? And, um, oh, and Kathy's not here. Where's Kathy today? Because uh, Kathy had asked me the other day, we were out on the island, and there were, uh, there were uh, uh, pepper trees, Brazilian pepper trees. And she had asked me, she said, hey, because uh, Christy and her kids were playing with them. And I saw a little kid playing with them, and Kathy goes, oh, are they, Kathy, is Kathy here? No, I don't see her today. And anyway, they were playing with them. She said, are those poisonous? And I said, oh, no, I think they're okay playing with them. Next thing I know, I'm walking back, and Kathy's eating something red, and I'm like, Kathy, what are you doing? She said, you said they weren't poisonous. I'm like, stop! I hope she's not dead. I'm just like saying, she, Kathy, we'll see you in heaven. No, I'm just, no, I don't. But, but so, so there's got to be some instructions go with this. But literally, one-year-olds left by themselves will not become two-year-olds. It takes somebody to help, uh, to help you mature. Now, Zane, how old are you? Come on, man. 47? 37. 37, sorry, man. Yeah. Will a 30, Christy, will a 37 year old left by himself become a 38 year old? You're giving him way too much credit. I'm just saying. How many of y'all can do life by how many of you ever discipled anybody? How many of you ever helped somebody through a crisis? Okay? You've helped them through that crisis. And, and so one of the things that we teach others to do is get through conflicts. Okay? And so God may bring a conflict into a life or allow a conflict to come into a life so you can help them, so they can be helped, and then they can help others because we help each other through these. But the point is, is that we need each other. A one-year-old left by themselves will not become a two-year-old, all right? It's just not going to happen. And as we get older, we kind of think we're more independent, but we do need each other. Let's take a look in context to see where this is. Um, now, basically, you remember last week we talked about the Jerusalem Council. Uh, they were trying to figure out if Jews, you know, Gentiles needed to, to be circumcised and go through all the Jewish rituals and have Christ. And the answer was no. That, that Christ plus nothing equals everything. That's all you need. And so they're all up in Antioch. They're all, you know, having a great time. They've solved this. They're worshiping together. They're praying together. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit starts to work. All right? And um, how many of you know that you are totally different than the person next to you? <laughs> yeah. Well, look, you're right. You're, you're, you went right. Yeah, Rob's different than you? Oh, my goodness, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we're going to talk more about that. Yeah. Uh, and and so, so if God gives you two an idea, do you, do you generally try to attack it the same way? No. And, and so that's a good thing. But can that ever cause conflict? Yeah, even if it's a Holy Spirit idea, there can still be conflict. 
Uh, I know you two don't fight, or at least you don't think. Do <laughs> uh, you all ever have conflict trying to attack the same idea that the Holy Spirit given, attacking it from different directions? Absolutely. How about you, Carl and Val? Yeah. Uh, Christine and Mike, does it ever happen? No, you just say yes, ma'am, and do it, right? All right. All right. But, but anyways, so listen to what the Scripture tells us in this passage of Scripture. This is the end of chapter 15. It says, after some time. It didn't say after a long time, which meant they were there longer than they wanted to. These guys were comfortable. You ever been comfortable somewhere and, and, and God keeps nudging you to do something, but you won't do it because you're comfortable? Anybody been there? You're comfortable. What does God have to do to get you to move sometimes? <clears throat> Make you uncomfortable. In fact, there's a saying in counseling that until the pain to change is less than the pain to stay the same, you won't change. And so that's where conflict comes in. It had to happen with the church in Jerusalem. It happens in our own life. We get comfortable. Anybody here get comfortable? And you're like, leave me alone. I'm good right here. Is that you, Matthew? Oh, yeah. Leave me alone. And then God starts putting the puree button on on the blender. And there goes life. And we, it draws us to him. So after some time, Paul and Barnabas, man, they, they, they come back to Jerusalem, they're, or, or they're back up in Antioch. They've told them what they said in Jerusalem. Everything's good. And all of a sudden, they get a, a met, something from the Holy Spirit, and it says, let's go back and visit each city. Paul said this to Barnabas. Let's go back and visit each city where we previously preached the word of the Lord. And look at the purpose of this. What's the purpose? Read this for me. To see what? How the new believers are doing. So it wasn't a matter of just going and leading somebody to Christ and say, okay, good luck. There's the word of God. You're on your own. And, 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 it, and it wasn't a matter of them staying there forever. They went from place to place preaching the gospel. But uh, in this, they, were, they preached the gospel. They set up leaders. And then they left. But the church was very young. They were babies. They were not. How many of y'all are more mature in Christ right now than you were a year ago? Hands not. You should be. You should be more mature in Christ today than you were last week or yesterday. We should be growing each day. But we start out as babies. We start out like kids thinking we know everything. And then as God keeps bringing things into our life, we realize how much we have to have faith and depend and rely upon him who really does know everything. And, and, and it's not important to know everything. It's important to know the one that does and be following him and letting him show us what to do in every situation. But here it was. Paul's like, you know what? I wonder how these guys, all these churches we started on our last missionary journey before we start the second one. Let's go back and, and, and let's go. Let's go see how these guys are doing, because they knew that a one year old left to himself was not going to be a two year old. Do you understand that what we're talking about in Christianity is spiritual warfare? This is battle. This is not some social club. When you decide to do what the church has been called to do in making disciples, when you take serious for what God has called us to do from the time we're born again to the time he brings us home, we are at odds. We are fighting the enemy, and he does not sit back calmly. You know when he sits back calmly? When you have come into a comfortable Christianity, when you are lukewarm, when you are like, you, you, you've now got a great balance between church and the world. You're comfortable. And when God calls you out of that comfortable state to stand up for him, to take a stand, to step out and start representing him in a bold way, you will get opposition from everywhere. And they knew that the church was facing that and it, because where they were getting ready to go, what happened when they preached there? 
First place, when Paul preached there, what happened when he got up in there? He got kicked out. Second place, they threatened to do what? Stone him. The third place, they did what? They did stone him. <laughs> and, 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 he, and, and he made it back. I mean, so this was serious warfare that was going on. And he was not going to let his babies be left unattended. They needed to go back there because they knew one-year-olds in Christ needed to be discipled to become two-year-olds or they were going to get eaten alive. That's why the mission of the church is to make disciples in all of that. And one of the main things, if you were to look at what Paul settled mostly in the church epistles, what was he settling? What was the C word we're talking about today? He was helping them how to get through. What is it? It's conflicts, right? One of the greatest ways you can disciple people. When do people want to be discipled? When do they want to see life from God's perspective? Hey, Ralph, man, when you got it all, it's all going good. And you're in that spiritual lazy boy eating spiritual bonbons, watching spiritual. You kind of neglect God, man, right? But it's when things get tough. That's when you start getting serious. We always say you can have one heck of a prayer meeting in the belly of a whale, right? You know, like Jonah. And so it's, it's, it's in conflicts that God draws us closer to him. It's in conflicts that he draws others to us. And we help each other through all of those situations. And so understand, one-year-olds will never make it to two-year-olds unless somebody is helping them through that journey. And in helping people through this journey, in making disciples, one of the primary things you are going to help them deal with. What's the C word again? Conflicts. But nobody's going to grow. How many of y'all ever grew by helping somebody through a conflict? Yeah. But we have two choices. We see the conflict. Like, oh, no, not that again. <laughs> Oh, who, what, they're called? Oh, no, I know it. every time they call. No, no. Now, it's none of you guys. It's people from previous churches I pastored. Right? Not you guys, obviously. But, but in conflicts, did God not handpick you to be involved in that conflict? As well as he allowed, you've got a partnership. You've got a relationship as a brother in Christ and a sister in Christ. So after some time, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit each city where we previously preached the word of the Lord. And let's see how these new believers are doing. It is immoral for a church to bring people to Christ with the gospel and then let them be out and never disciple them. But by the same time, it's just as immoral to always be discipling and never bringing anybody to Christ. They go hand in hand. They're together. And we'll talk more about that later. So here, that's what the thing is. Is this a good idea? Did the Holy Spirit give them this idea? Go back and make sure these people, dude, if nothing else, you can encourage them. Because they're in real warfare right now. So the next thing I want you to see in conflicts is God puts what? Yeah, except with Judy and Charlie, you guys are exactly the same, aren't you? No, uh, where's my wife? She might be down. So, uh, uh, yeah, back there. We are exactly the same, man. Now, <laughs> you cannot find more opposites. In fact, when we were dating and getting ready to get married, people were coming to her and they're saying, are you sure? You know this guy? Do you see what? Dude, he's nothing like you. <laughs> and, and, and God... Praise God, he blinded her eyes and made her marry me. How many of y'all have a spouse like that, that God blinded their eyes and they had to marry you? And then after the wedding, when the veil was lifted, like, what the heck did I just do? Fortunately, she takes her commitment to God seriously, and it is till death to us part, and she hasn't murdered me yet. But <laughs> well, I'm joking. We're madly in love. <laughs> we are. 
<laughs> I love this oppositeness. But God puts opposites together. How many of y'all would say in your relationship, not only, your, your, not only in your marriage, but in the relationships you have with other people, how many of you would say God puts opposites together? The world knows that. I talk a lot in premarital counseling. One of my, just the big crux of total premarital counseling and by the way, whatever I share in premarital counseling is generally what I need to share again in marriage counseling because it's the key. And that is that, that if both of you are the same, one of you is not necessary. God puts opposites together. If this is your strengths and these are your weaknesses, if you are both the same, that's all you can accomplish right there. You've got some chinks in the armor. You've got some cracks in the wall, man. You, you've got some vulnerable places. But what God does is this. He does this, and not only did he do that, but he also made men and women different. How many of y'all agree men and women are different? Okay, yeah, and I'm not going to go into that. If you want to go into that, we do that on Bible study nights, all right? But, but, but here it is, so we have opposites, and that's who he puts together. And he told us in marriage we're supposed to leave, leave our parents. Now, that doesn't mean we ditch our parents. It means that now we have new priorities in a relationship. We leave, we cleave. We cleave together. When you cleave together, it's inseparable. Two become one, okay? And as you leave and cleave, now you start to weave, all right? Everybody just say that so you can be qualified marriage counselors right now. Leave, cleave, and weave. How tough is that right there? How tough is that right there? <laughs> leave and cleaving and weaving, man. It, hey, Rob, the older you get, does it get easier as you retire? No, no, dude, I'm, I'm not picking on you. I'll pick on, dude, there's a, I was just with some friends of Mac and Holly out on the island. They were, and the lady's actually writing a book about what happens when a husband retires. <laughs> How many of y'all, anybody identify with that at all? Would you be willing to raise it? Yeah. It, it, listen to this. It almost sounds Dr. Seuss's. It's called Spouse in the House. And I'll let you know when it's out. But it's a real thing, man, because now all of a sudden he's home and, 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 you know, she's got her system and, and he's like, you know, doesn't have his business anymore or whatever. Now he's, she, he thinks she's his employee. And it just goes on, man. Spouse in the house, right? It's a tough thing. But so what I'm saying is you spend your entire life in a relationship, leaving, cleaving, and weaving. Does it end? Pauline, how long y'all been married? 60 years. Are y'all still weaving? You ain't got it all finally weaved and you can't say it. No. Jerry's shaking. He said, no, we don't. <laughs> You're right. We'll be 30 years in June, man. And, and yeah, we still got a lot of weaving to do. But it's not just talking about this marriage relationship. It's every relationship. Again, if both of you are the same, one of you is not necessary. In fact, I'm going to present this to you. How many of y'all have somebody that as soon as you see them or you, you see them coming or you hear about them or whatever, you just don't care for them? Come on, I know you're in church. Quit being pious. You, seriously, somebody comes to mind like, ooh, they make your skin crawl. Anybody? Yeah, thank you. All right, because the rest of you just lied and you need to repent over that. But I, wanna, I want you to check this out. I want you to ask the Holy Spirit of God, say, God, do they irritate me so much because they're more like me? Because they're just like me? Because, uh, no, everybody's like, no, no, I'm nothing like that. That's kind of sometimes, you know, I want to present this to you. I think sometimes we are irritated by most by the people that are like us because the truth hurts. Sometimes we see them coming. We see what they, and, and, and it reminds us of things that we do. And we're like, oh no, we separate ourselves from it. 
So think about that. Ask God about that and say, God, in what ways am I like that person that irritates me? And see if he doesn't really show you some things about that possibility. All right. So but God puts opposites together and he does it for a reason, because because you can do more. I try to purposely surround myself with people that are better than me at what I'm not good with. That's one of my prayers every day. Man, can you imagine if I had to be the band? Man, Gigi, I'm surprised. Most people don't last more than two weeks sitting there because I'm right here worshiping, all right? <laughs> and in fact, the microphone here, I see, I see EJ turning it off and on like while I'm singing, but <laughs> that's another story. We all have different gifts. We have different abilities, different ways to look, and we need to be able to come together. But if we're different, what is the one thing that we need inside of us to bring us together? The Holy Spirit. Man, if you try to make everybody do it your way, what have you reproduced? You, but can anybody be you? No, Gary, can anybody be you? No. Can, how about you, man? Can you be somebody else? No, you can try, but are you going to be as good at, at, at being them as you are at being you? And, and if you don't even want to be you, who's going to want to be you? Anybody? Yeah. And, and nobody's being you. And if you weren't necessary, would God have created you? You, you're necessary. You be you. And let them be them. And, but you have to have the Holy Spirit of God in your life to resolve the conflict. I always tell people in this premarriage counseling, your way ain't right, your way ain't right, y'all's way is right. It now comes together. But it's not just there. It's in the church. And that's what we're going to see. We're talking about in the church between Paul and Barnabas. Put all these personalities, all these temperaments together. And you can have conflict. But if we all submit to the Holy Spirit, man, he has a wonderful way of working it all out. Amen. So let's see what happens. And I'm going to tell you this. Sometimes we can learn from people's bad examples, <laughs> which is what I think we're going to do today. I'm not giving any of these guys credibility or, or props on this, but we'll, we'll see. So God puts opposites together. Look at this. Barnabas agreed. said, what a great idea. How many of y'all had a thing with your wife or someone else and you started out by saying, what a great idea. And then a little while later, it's like, yeah, maybe we shouldn't do this. <laughs> they just started out. What a great idea. And Mark said, or Barnabas, he said, man, how about we take my little cuz back with us and take John Mark with us? And, and Paul probably at the beginning kind of acted like he didn't hear it. <laughs> and we'll find out later. He probably didn't. Uh, isn't that how we do a conflict? It's like, uh, it's about, I, I mean, what? You know, maybe he won't bring it up again. But the Greek tense for wanted here means that Barnabas over and over and over repeated it. So the next thing he did was, hey, Paul, let's bring Mark. And, Mark, and, and Paul's like, let me pray about it. Have you ever had somebody say that? <laughs> let me pray about it. You know what that sometimes means? It means no, unless God changes my heart. Okay. And, and then Barnabas took out a billboard in Antioch and said, we need to bring Mark. <laughs> uh, he was very persistent, would not quit. And Paul finally got upset. And we're going to see he says no. But in here, Barnabas wanted to take along Mark. And Paul disagreed. What's the word? Yeah, you know how that's also translated? Violently. <laughs> I, now, you know, I, I recently heard a, a term that caught my eye, and it's called church porn. All right? Listen, I'm going to explain that. called church porn. And, and, and they're taking the idea that, that basically in church there are pastors 
And there are people in congregations that are looking for that perfect artificial church. Pastors walking around saying, man, I'm done with this church. I'm going to go find the perfect church. You know, and they're taking the concept from, from airbrushed bodies and pornography being nothing like real life. But there's church porn is what it's called. And pastors are leaving pastors whenever there's a conflict and another conflict. Instead of dealing with it, they're leaving. And they're leaving it behind instead of getting what the Holy Spirit wants everyone to get out of it. And they're looking for the perfect place. Is there going to be a perfect church? No, no because it's made up of what kind of people? Imperfect people. Yeah, what'd you say, Mike? Yeah. <laughs> yes. In the same way, church people. Well, I just don't like, well, I'm just not, you know. It's like, dude, if this is not the place for you, please let me help you find the place. But if you're looking for the perfect place, you ain't going to find it. It's not there. So Paul disagreed strongly and, and violently. In this particular story, we're going to see that, uh, that the New Testament church wasn't perfect. That's the church porn everybody's looking for. If we could just have one like the New Testament church in Acts, where everybody got along and where they were just leading thousands of people to Christ and everybody was getting discipled and everybody was on fire for Christ. Well, God injects this story in to show that they had conflict. And in their conflict, they didn't even do it right. But God could still use it. And we can learn from their mistakes. There is no perfect church. There is no perfect pastor. There are no perfect congregations. And you need to be where God has placed you. You not to know that you're where God wants you. And you do everything in your power to make those in leadership a success. If they're following God. And if you don't think they are, go somewhere else. But again, the point is, is there's no perfect place. And we're going to see that here. Paul died, disagreed strongly, violently. They had a knockdown drag out. How many of you have never seen a knockdown drag out in a church business meeting? You have never seen a knockdown drag out between believers. Raise your hand if you've never seen that, please. Go ahead. That is awesome. No, seriously. I want people to testify that there have been churches they've been in where they've never seen that. They've seen people handle things rightly. But how many of you have seen things get out of hand in a church? We're flesh and pride. And bit all that. You know what the devil has done? He's distracted everyone now to deal with something other than what the mission is, which is to make disciples. And it was pride. In Proverbs, it says, only by pride comes contention and strife. If there's ever contention and strife, it's pride. And you may be saying, yep, that's exactly what I told my wife. She's prideful. She needs to <laughs> repent because <laughs> I'm right. It's all good. <laughs> no, I've never in 20 something years of pastoring and helping people through conflict. I've never seen it be one person's fault. Oh, you're going to challenge me afterwards. And say, Oh, let me tell you about my situation. <laughs> I'm telling you, it takes two to tangle. Tango. Tangle. How's it go? All right. Yeah, where I grew up, man, we made up our own stuff like that. All right. But all right. But Paul disagreed strongly with John Mark or since John Mark had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in their work. So here's the deal on the first missionary journey. They they are over here uh, in Antioch. They, they went and sailed. What would it be? They sailed west to Cyprus, to the island of Cyprus, where Barnabas was kind of from and probably John Mark. And they sailed over there. And then they were going to, and everything was cool. We, we were sailing. It was good. Everybody see the movie, What About Bob? 
Anybody see? Y'all thought, remember, remember when, when he ties himself to the mask and he's like, I'm sailing. <laughs> you know, that, that's probably John Mark. Dude, this is cool. I'm on a mission trip. Yeah, man. We're and then all of a sudden, Paul and Barnabas want to go north into some hostile territory and start bringing the gospel to people who had never heard it, people who were Gentiles. And as soon as they get over there, John Mark looks at things and is like, and we don't really know. We don't know why he left, but we know that he did leave. He's like, yeah, I ain't going no further with you guys. And he went back home. Well, in this, Paul disagreed strongly and said, John Mark, he left us. He deserted us and had not continued with them in the work. And, uh, and so, uh, so they had two different mentalities. Paul's mentality was this. Time is short. Time is short. And, 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 and um, we don't have time for quitters like him. We got to be out and share the gospel. Barnabas what was, hey, what does the name Barnabas mean, anybody? Encourager, son of encouragement. Was he born with that name? No, if you look in Acts, who can tell me what his name, first name was? I give you a hand, it's my middle name. Ashley, what's, what was his name? Joseph, yeah. His name was Joseph. And when he got saved, and, and actually, let me know what his profession was. What was he, according to the book of Acts? He was a Levi, and he was a rich Levi. And he got saved. His name was Joseph. And he got on fire for Christ. And all of a sudden, everybody in church looked at him and said, Dude, that guy's an encourager. And they nicknamed him Son of Encouragement. Wouldn't that be an awesome nickname to have? How many of y'all like to be Son of Encouragement? <laughs> or how many of y'all like to be the daughter of discouragement? Bro? No, I'm just saying. Son of Encouragement. That's, and that's his name. That's how he got it. You can read the book of Acts about all of that. And so, so his idea was... Dude, come on, John Mark, get up. He's his cousin, by the way. He says, dude, get up. Come on, man. Let's go on another trip. But, uh, Barnabas was more kind of about, hey, if you get involved in the ministry, it'll rock your world. It'll change your life. What can the ministry do for you? Paul was like, what can you do for the ministry? <laughs> All right. <clears throat> you get that? One was, what can the ministry do for you? The other one was, what can you do for the ministry? Hey, Karen, I saw your post this morning from Oswald Chambers, whatever. Which one's right? Which one's right? Let me ask you all this question. Which one's right? What can the ministry do for you or what can you do for the ministry? Is one of them right and one of them wrong? How about that? No, you need them both. And you will see we have default modes. Churches have default modes. There'll be one church that it's what can you do for the ministry? What can you do for the ministry? Now, do, does God expect you to do something for the church? Are you expected to serve? Absolutely. But by the same token, there's other churches that are, it's all about what can God do for you? What can God, and he has become our servant instead of we his, if that makes sense. Which one's right? Or do we need both? So look how God put optics together. Barnabas says, what can the ministry do for you? Paul's, what can you do for the ministry? And usually the stronger, more bold, kind of fussier, more argumentative one wins out, don't they? Isn't that how it works in your relationships, Seth? No, I'm, <laughs> I'm so trying to get him in trouble, man. No. It does. And, and so, so which one's right? God, you see what God beautifully did? He put opposites together in this ministry. But they missed that. They missed it. They fought. They had a knockdown drag out. They had just come back preaching what great things God had done and miracles and all these wonderful things. And all of a sudden, they have a knockdown drag out on what the Holy Spirit wants them to do. Well, that kind of messes things up, doesn't it? You think it hurt the church at all? 
Have you ever been hurt watching what you considered spiritual people have a fight and not handling it right? I know so many people, man, I have been to church in 30 years because of those hypocrites. Because of this, because of that, whatever. Well, you know what? There's hypocrites everywhere. There's hypocrites at your bar. There's hypocrites wherever you go, Walmart, even Target. <laughs> They're even more because they don't want to go to Walmart, but I'm just joking. <laughs> but literally, who's it hurting? It's hurting you. You walk for Christ, you keep doing that. But, but in that, I want you to know when we don't let the Holy Spirit resolve our conflicts, it doesn't just hurt us, it hurts people who, who look up to us. People we're supposed to be discipling. It hurts people who are watching us, looking to see if you have a different God, a, really do have a God living in you. Or if you're going to solve things the way the world solves them. Which side you're going to pick and which one you're going you're to fight for. Sometimes it doesn't matter really who wins, does it? Well, who's got to win is God. So, again, first thing we learned is a one-year-old left to themselves will never become a two-year-old. What next thing is God puts what? Opposites together. Yeah, he puts opposites together. And, and that's just a fact of life. And it's better to work together, to leave, cleave, and weave than, than to, to separate. But the fact is, as Paul even wrote later, he said, you know, um, he said, we just got to try to be as at much peace as we can with everyone. In other words, how many of y'all know the difference between forgiveness and restoration? <laughs> We're going to talk about this at the end, but all that's required for somebody, all that's required for you to forgive somebody is that they wrong you. Anybody who wrongs you, you forgive them. But are you required in Scripture to restore that relationship to the way it was before they wronged you? How many people does it take for you, for, uh, for you to forgive someone? One person. For you to forgive someone who's wronged you, all it takes is you. Can you imagine if it was dependent on their repentance, their everything? All it takes is one person, that's you. But to restore a relationship, how many does it take? Whoever was involved in the conflict to begin with. And sometimes restoration doesn't happen, but forgiveness always does. And again, we're going to end with that. But sometimes, you know what? When things get unhealthy, I want you to look at this next part. There is a world of difference between what? And divorce. A world of difference between separation and divorce. Okay? In this particular situation, what was Paul and Barnabas married to? The gospel. They were married to the gospel. Now, could you see coming out of this conflict, could you, Matthew, could you see somebody having this violent and messed up of an argument, this blatantly outward just conflict? They didn't care who, all they were caring about was their pride. Could you see one of them saying, I'm done. I'm never going to church again. I'm done with the gospel. I'm done preaching. All the difference called. Could you see people, one, of the people, one of the persons leaving? Yeah. The pastors that are leaving the ministry, the number of pastors leaving ministry is astonishing. And a lot of it happens over stuff like this. They've had it. They're done. They're whooped. And it doesn't make it right, but it is what happens. But sometimes before things get out of hand where they quit, it's wiser for them to separate. And that's what happens here. Look what happened here in this. It says their disagreement was so sharp. Does anybody have another translation? So what? Anything? So what? Bitter. bitter. Remember that word bitter in our last illustration we used today. Their disagreement was so bitter. Uh, another translation is violent. I want you to know Paul and Barnabas, those guys we hold up in quote unquote church porn. 
where they were the perfect pastors. They had the perfect church, and we need to be just like all of them. Dude, they had a bitter, violent, knockdown, drag out. And it, just because the Bible records it doesn't make it right. In fact, God's recording it to show us it makes it wrong. Their disagreement was so bitter that they did what? And you're like, oh, and, and sad. That, that, that is a bad thing. Because what, what would have been the best thing for them to do? Yeah, swallow their pride. That's what Paul was trying to convince Barnabas of. Dude, see it my way and we'll be okay. <laughs> that is who Paul was, all right? And Barnabas was like the encourager trying to like, come on, man, let, let, see it a little bit my way. Quit trying to be so, you know, and, and, and so they finally, they didn't quit. Quit would have been worse. But what they did was what again? Separated. They separated. And then Barnabas took John Mark with him and sailed for Cyprus. A lot of ways to look at all this, man. Do you, does anybody remember how, tie, how, how far back Paul and Barnabas' relationship goes? Man, do you remember at the beginning of the book of Acts, do you remember when, when the, the people didn't trust Paul because he had been killing the Christians? Who was it that went to bat for Paul and basically who said, hey, guys, you know what? I think we can trust this guy. I think he was preaching in the city. Who was it that, that put his stamp of approval on Paul as a young Brand new baby Christian, all fireball on fire for Christ. Who was it that told the rest of the Christians that Paul was okay? It's Barnabas. Barnabas was like that elder daddy, kind of that, that guy who, who encouraged Paul through it. kind of Because Paul didn't just start preaching right away. Barnabas was with him from the beginning. Barnabas was the one who helped him out. Barnabas had some bucks. <laughs> Barnabas probably fed him. Barnabas paid some bills. Barnabas, you go read about Paul and Barnabas' relationship. It wasn't like they were just two guys came together and preached, got in a fight, and left. They were like this. And Barnabas went to bat for Paul. But they had two different personalities. Again, Barnabas' personality, what, what does it mean? What, why did they name him Barnabas? Because it means son of what? Encouragement. Encouragement. So what do you think he's trying to do this whole time in this conflict with Paul? Who's stubborn and bullheaded. And it's only one way. <laughs> Anybody know anybody like that? Y'all look in the mirror today? <laughs> no, I'm just saying. But that's who Paul was. There's no options. There's no wiggle room. There's no. And Barnabas, I'm like, yeah, dude, come on. I'm not trying to make you create heresy. I just want you to see. There's two different kind of people here. So sometimes we look at this argument, we're saying, oh, what a wuss Barnabas was walking away. What a, man, he quit on, he walked away. And you know what? We never hear about Barnabas in the book of Acts ever again. We'll hear later Paul kind of validating Barnabas' ministry, saying, yeah, he, he's doing okay. God had, God had plans on what he's going to record in there. But let me ask you a question. Who was the bigger man? We don't know. Yeah. I don't want you to discredit Barnabas. Because how many of you have had to t be a bigger man or a woman and walk away than stay there and fight with somebody who's not budging? They're different people. How do we know whether we stay and fight or we walk away? How do we know? How do we know, Seth? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. But there's a thing called pride that gets in the way of every one of us from hearing from the Holy Spirit. And oftentimes, especially in the religious world, we want to cover up that pride. We want to cover up the Holy Spirit with that pride. We're so dug in. We're so entrenched. 
None of us here are perfect. Why did God put somebody opposite in our life? To help us see things from another perspective. Because it's impossible for any one of us to see everything from God's perfect perspective. We're not that good. We have a, how many of y'all know you got a blind spot? <laughs> you got a blind spot? How do you know, Charlie? Can you see it? Can you see your blind spot? Who had to show you your blind spot? God. Yeah, through that woman right there. <laughs> I could tell you yeah. a lifelong story about her. Absolutely. None of us are so perfect in our knowledge of God. we got to take it all in. Again, I'm not asking you to go against what Scripture says, but what I'm asking you to do, Zane had a beautiful illustration of that out on the island. He was talking, and one day I'll let him preach that, about, about how you've got to be willing to look at both sides. You didn't think I was listening as you were talking to Whitbear. You've got to be willing to listen to one side, otherwise all you're doing is corroborating your side. Only by pride comes contention and strife. And you don't know it all. And I'm talking to everyone, including me. Their disagreement was so sharp that they separated. Barnabas took John Mark with them and sailed for Cyprus. So bottom line, I don't know what it looks like. I'm going to look at it in Godflex one day, and I'll see. But here's what I picture. I picture Barnabas saying, all right, John, you know what? God wants to work through you. God wants to use you. There's things God can do in your life. So, so you know what I want to do? I want to take you, and we're just going to leave. God's going to certainly use Paul. He's got things to go and do. God, there's plenty for us to do over here in Cyprus. Let's go. <clears throat> So it wasn't like, it could have been Barnabas saying, oh yeah, well I hate your guts and I'm never going to see you and never talk to you again. I'm going to unfriend you on Facebook. <laughs> and what? It could have been that, but I don't think so. Because God ended up using it. It might have started that way. But the bottom line is they separated. I used to have fish. Anybody here raise fish or have fish in an aquarium? Um, yeah, I, I used to love fish until the, until the hurricane in 04, 05, and being without power for a month or so. And then I was like, dude, I'm never doing this again. I'm only going to look at fish out here. But even in the beginning of our marriage, in my study, in my office, I had no less than 20, 30 tanks. I used to breed live bread. And, and the biggest thing, I would even breed egg layers, which was kind of hard, man. Anybody can do guppies and platies, whatever. But, dude, and I had African cichlids. I had Central American cichlids. I had all kinds. I had tanks, man, my kids. Rummy nose tetras. I'd have 40 of them all in a school, man. And my kids would be just looking at them. It was really cool. And, and you know what? At some point, anybody know what ick is? Anybody got, know what ick is? Ick's always in the tank, right? It's always there. But when the... When the uh, fish, a particular fish, their resistance gets down, the disease can then take over them. And when that fish gets ick, okay, that fish needs to be separated. If I don't separate, what two things are going to happen? It's going to kill all the other fish. It's going to spread its disease to the others, all right? But two, it's going to die. And so I'll never forget, man, um, I was in seminary and I'm chasing a fish around a tank. Because I'm, what's my goal? I'm trying to get this fish out of the tank. And I'm trying to put him in one of the hospital tanks I have where it can be by itself and I can raise it back up and it can be healthy again and then I can put it back in that tank again and it can be better than new. That's my goal. Is that not God's goal for us sometimes? But what happens when you see the net coming in and it's God? What do you think that fish was doing? Stressing itself out, running into the glass walls, bam, bam, running in, running into other fish. It's running from me. Finally, I, I catch that fish after it's worse now than it could have been if it would just swam into the net. I'm telling you, if God's doing this with you, swim into the net. 
I'd take it and I'd put it in a hospital tank. I'd make sure the tank was warm because it doesn't like warm tanks. It liked cold tanks. And I'd put different fungicides and different things in there. And it looked ugly and everything, but that fish would be brought back to health. I had to separate it. I didn't kill it. I didn't flush it because it was sick. I separated it. And then when it got healthy, I brought it back in there. So I just want you to know sometimes it's healthier to separate than to divorce. It's healthier to separate than to quit. It's healthier to separate than to make everybody else sick. But we've got, who is it that tells us? Again, the Holy Spirit. You got to know where to go and what to do. Uh, this isn't where we just sign up and we just go through life, dude. We're on the clock for Christ as, as ambassador. We're in a moment by moment relationship with him. And he's telling us what to do at any given point in time. And so, again, it is sometimes just as in marriages. I've been doing working with marriages for over 20 something years. And I'm not saying I'm some expert, but there are times how, how many of you agree, not in your marriage, but you've seen in other people's marriage, your neighbors, all right? The dude, as long as they stayed together, they were doing nothing but eating each other alive. They needed some space. And the space you give them is not to separate, not to kill them, not to not bring them back again. The, the space they get is where they can work on each other. And then they come back healthy. Because sometimes there's so much conflict in a home that all it's going to do is stir things up more the more they're together. Anybody ever seen that? It's called a health tank in fish. <laughs> and sometimes we need to separate. And we need to get our own act together. We need to get our own self right. We need to figure out what God wants us to do. And then we need to do it. God can make beauty out of ashes, but why do we always let him burn down the tree before it becomes beautiful? It doesn't have to get down to ashes. And so, again, the disagreement was so sharp, they separated. And everybody wants to look at this and say, yeah, Barnabas, dude, he just quit. And Paul, yep, he's the man. I want to be like, Paul. Barnabas probably could have been the bigger man walking away. You know? And he took John Mark with them. They sailed for Cyprus. So sometimes it's better to separate, and it definitely better separate than it is to divorce. But here's the last part in this uh, little section right here. Does it really matter who's right and who's wrong? When it comes down to hardcore doctrinal theological issues, yes. I am telling you, I, it breaks my heart as a pastor. I love each and every one of you, and I cannot tell you how many people I have seen in 20-something years get sucked away in a bad doctrine, in a bad theology. And yes, I am determining, I am discerning, and I am calling it a bad theology. They get sucked away into something, and to this day, they're not following Christ because they got disappointed. They were looking for something else and they've gotten disappointed. Some of them have come back. They come back and it takes a long time to even get back where they were. So, yes, there are times when it really does matter. But how many of you ever been, Charlie and Judy, y'all ever been in a fight before? I can't ask Seth and Charlie because they haven't, right? You've never been in a fight. All right, maybe, maybe we just need to like, like tell them what a fight is, all right? No, I'm just joking. I'm messing with you. You ever been in a fight, guys? Have you ever, both of you, in your pride, been so determined that you were right? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. And, and, you, and what happens when both of you guys think you're right? It's not going to quit till what? <laughs> Help me out. Until God interferes. Yeah, or one person just says, all right, I quit, you're right. <laughs> and they humor you, right? Yeah. Uh, is that what you do, Karen? No, I'm just messing with you. I'm just like, yeah. Not saying a word. Not saying a word. You're a smart woman right there. We've learned how to work through it. 
But again, sometimes it doesn't matter on these issues, some of the issues, who's right and who's wrong. What really matters is if God gets to accomplish what God wants to accomplish. It's not important to be right always, is it? It's not important to win the battle if you lose the war, you've heard people say. It doesn't sometimes matter who's right and wrong, and sometimes that's what our pride feeds on. I am right and they are wrong. And then all of a sudden, everybody who's anything like them, they're wrong. And now we're living in a world where we're the only ones right. Aren't you glad that happened to you, Pittsburgh, Rob? Aren't you glad you're not in a world where you're the only one right? <laughs> yeah. It's at least me and you when we're paddling around cheese ball and solving all the problems of the world. They're all wrong, and it's just us right. Why can't they see it our way? But a lot of times, it doesn't matter who's right in this argument. And that's where I see kind of Barnabas in some of this. But look at this. So Paul chose Silas, and as he left. Now, here's the thing. When you read the scripture, what you're going to see is you're going to see the church back up Paul. They basically, they're sending Paul out. So, so your mind wants to say Paul was right, but your heart wants to say Barnabas was right. And I'm telling you, both of them were wrong. <laughs> Both of them were wrong. Paul chose Silas, okay? So Paul got another guy, Silas. He was a prophet. He was a, a Roman citizen. There were so many good things about Paul and Silas getting together. Uh, only God could put together. And as he left, the believers there in Antioch entrusted him to the Lord's gracious care. They sent them out. They didn't do that with Barnabas and Paul or Barnabas and, and uh, uh, Mark. They just kind of left. They kind of squeaked out and left. But Paul, man, stuck around. They're like, all right, go. Go and share the gospel. And you don't need to go to Crete because that's where they're at. Just go up this other way, which we'll see. So Paul chose Silas, and as he left, the believers entrusted him. They did do things right in that way to the Lord's gracious care. Then they traveled through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches there. So one good thing that came through it, they started out with how many mission teams? One, but they ended up with how many? Does that excuse the way they dealt with this conflict? Could God not have accomplished that in another way? So don't write off this conflict saying, oh, that's what God wanted. They had to get them fight. What a sorry thing if God has to get you fighting to accomplish something. It should be we're all in one accord. We're praying and the Holy Spirit says, let's do this. Hey, when do we quit praying? Yeah, when we get the answer. When we know what God wants us to do, when do you quit fasting? You want an answer for something and you start fasting? You tell God, all right, I'm fasting this day and this day, and you better show me the answer. Or when do you, you start fasting and when do you quit fasting? If you really want an answer, when do you stop fasting? When he answers you. When do you quit praying? When he answers you. When he tells you what to do. But I think so often we have made God our servant instead of instead of us being his. And we give him these ultimatums and these, and these regulations and so on. And I don't think that's what they did. I think their pride got in the way. So they traveled throughout Syria, Sicilia, strengthening the churches there. So I want to tell you real super quick, and I'm going to bust through this. This is a passage of scripture that in my own devotion, my private devotion that I do every morning, and, and I send you guys out bits and pieces of it, who gets, my, who gets a, a text every morning? And you guys know that every time I send you that text, I'm praying for you. You know that. And if you're not getting one and you would like one, I try not to send it before 7. And it's what God gives me every morning. And as I push that one individual button to send you that individual text, I'm praying for you. Know that. 
But all I'm doing is reading through the Bible. Right now I'm in Luke. Next I'm going to go to, to John. Then I'll go to Acts. I'll just keep going through. And, and as I hit this passage of Scripture, I saw something really interesting about forgiveness and about resolving conflict that I want to share with you. And I'll be brief about it. Check this out. One day Jesus said to his disciples, he said, there's always going to be temptation and sin. Yeah, we've got imperfect people. There's always going to be temptation and sin. There's always people. Listen to this. Here's what he's saying. Josh, listen to what he's saying. Josh, look at me, man. Look at me. This is what he's saying. He said, there's always going to be people taking the bait off the hook. There's always going to be someone there taking the bait off the hook, right? You agree with that? That was only God dangled the right bait in front of our face for us to jump on and take it, right? And he said, there's always going to be people taking the bait. He says, but... What sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting. He says, there's always going to be people taking bait off the hook, but don't let it be you that's throwing the hook out there. As a believer, don't let it be you that's throwing that stumbling block. That, that thing for them to trip over. Don't be throwing that out. That's what that word temptation means. It says, don't be the one that's throwing the hook out there, the, throwing the stumbling block out. Don't be the one causing the trouble. There's enough trouble and there's going to be people always taking a hook. Don't you be the one doing that. In fact, he said it's going to be bad for you if you are that. And we can read this any way we want. But all I'm saying is when I see it, you don't want to be the guy throwing the hook. He said it'd be better to be thrown into the sea with a millstone, a big rock tied around your neck than to cause one of these little ones to fall in sin. Little one could be little children, but it's really in context of all of this where he's at in Luke. It's talking about brand new believers. Paul and Barnabas, dude, they had a bunch of baby believers when they're having their little knockdown, drag out, petty fight. They couldn't go take care of it in private. They couldn't go take care. Of it. They made a big deal out of it all. So much so it's written in the Bible as an example for us. But man, it's like he said, man, it'd be better for you. To have a violent death and to mess with one of my kids. How many of y'all got little, little grandkids? Have you got a little, somebody messing with your grandkid? What happens? Oh, you're on a, a plane and a heart. Who else, man? You got, you got, how many of y'all got kids? Yeah? Kids? Somebody mess with Oh, don't get me started about Chick-fil-A uh, playground now. That's a Christian place, right? Have y'all ever gone to the Chick-fil-A playground and seen the caliber of kids that are in there picking on my grandson, Keone? All he wants to do is go in there and play. And dude, there's big kids that aren't even allowed to be in there. And what, what happens? What comes out, man, when somebody starts? Mama Bear comes out. Yeah, Chris, Mama Bear ever come out? Does he even come out with big old Josh right now sometimes? You better believe it does. Hey, Josh, it's always going to come out. She's always going to be your mom. How many of y'all testified that Christy's always going to be a Mama Bear? Yeah, Pauline, you still a Mama Bear? Amen. That's exactly right. So, so what he's saying is God loves you. God, you're God's kid. God loves you. And woe to anybody, Christian or non-Christian, that's going to throw a, a stumbling block out there for you. So look what he says next in this. What's he say? Seth, what's he say? Watch yourself. Watch yourself. And who, who's he talking about? Every, yeah, whether you're the one who's, who's getting the stumbling block thrown in front of him or you're the one throwing the stumbling block. He said, watch yourselves. And he says, if another believer sins, let me ask you a question. Is it, a, is it really if or is it when, Zane? It's when. When another believer sins, what are we supposed to do? Yeah, and I'm going to tell you that if somebody offends you and you don't go to them, you're just as guilty as them. Sometimes what happens, somebody offends you, and then you all get together with your posse, and you're like, well, that person and that. Aren't you glad that doesn't happen in your little condo over there? 
You know, that don't happen in the condos, does it? You know, uh, Bonnie, why are you laughing? <laughs> you know, and you get your posse together and now you're all enemies. You know what he says? Somebody offends you. Your responsibility is to go to them. How many of you absolutely hate going to somebody and telling them they've offended you? Oh, that's the hardest thing in the world. You'd rather have your fingernails pulled out with vice grips than go to somebody and tell them that they've offended you. Because you're that passive, aggressive, peaceful person. It's their fault. I don't cause trouble. You cause trouble because sometimes it's a misunderstanding and you didn't go to them. So watch yourselves. If another believer sins, rebuke that person. Now, rebuke sounds pretty hard, Charlie, right? I rebuke you, right? Rebuke isn't like, I rebuke you. <laughs> There's no Southern. Oh, you know how they say it in the South? Bless your heart, <laughs> right? Y'all who are visiting, if you ever hear bless your heart, that means a lot of things, all right? And ask a Southerner what that really means. It means everything but bless your heart, all right? But yeah, rebuke that person. Tell them. Go to them in a spirit of love and tell them. This is what the problem. Look, man, you came and you did this. I cannot tell you how grateful I am that people have come to me and said, yeah, you know, when you did that, that offended me. And I'm like, oh, oh that's the last thing I wanted to do. I love you. I didn't, I didn't mean to do that. Oh, I'm sorry. And now the problem is resolved. When you come in a spirit of love and you come to each other and you talk, it's a first step in res resolving the conflict. So if another believer sins, rebuke that person. Look at this part. He says, then if there is repentance, forgive. Now, you know what he's not saying? All right, me and Rob got a problem, blah, 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 blah. And, hey, Rob, you offended me. And he's like, yeah, so what? Get out of here. Am I still? He didn't repent, so do I still forgive him? Yes, according to other scripture, I do. All that's required for me to do to forgive somebody is they wrong me. But if Rob says, oh, dude, yeah, I'm sorry. I, mean, I am required. If somebody, especially a brother or sister, says, I repent, I'm sorry. Whether you think they're sincere or not, how many of y'all didn't forgive somebody because you said they're not sincere? Let me see your hand. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They're not worthy of my forgiveness. They're not, you know, they weren't sincere. What he's telling us in this passage is we should not be judging people's sincerity. Rob says he, that he's sorry, man. I forgive him. And we start trying to reestablish that relationship. So this isn't saying that they don't say, oh, I don't have to forgive them. They didn't repent. They didn't technically repent. You know, that's what we'd like to do, right? That's what we're saying, saying if they do repent and say they're sorry, dude, you got no excuse for not forgiving them in that. So he goes on and he says, even if that person wronged you, how many times? Seven, seven times a day. And seven is the perfect number in scripture. So what did he tell Peter? Because Peter was trying to be all spiritual and said, what if... What if I forgive them seven times, whatever, you know, seven times? And what did Jesus say? Seven How many? Yes, that 490 times. And Jesus said, one saying, all right, Seth, you are on your 489th time. One more and you're out. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying as often as someone offends you, you forgive them. If they repent, they say, I'm sorry, man. You have no excuse not to forgive them in that. So he's telling these disciples this hard thing. How many of y'all have a hard time with this so far? Honestly, we have a hard time. Forgiveness is the most godlike thing we can do. You want to see a miracle? You want to impress people? Forgive somebody. <laughs> that would blow everyone away. Because it takes a miracle to do it, doesn't it? Look what he says, man. Forgive them. You must forgive as often as they do it. Look at this next verse. So the apostles, I don't want you to miss it. This is the one I want you to see. So the apostles are like, oh. they say to the Lord, show us how to what? Forgive. 
Oh, one more time. So he said, you've got to forgive people. Even if they for keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it, you have to forgive them. And what is the thing that they say they need in order to forgive? Faith. You need love to have the desire, but to be able to do it, you have to have what? Do you get that? I never saw that before. Maybe it's just me. I ain't the sharpest marble in the box. But when I read that, it's like, oh, increase my faith and I'll be able to forgive. Because sometimes, why don't we forgive? Pride. Pride, yeah, yeah. Because God, how many of y'all have not forgiven sometimes because you think you just don't have the faith to believe that God's going to really do to them what's necessary? God's not, God really just isn't going to take care of them as good as I could take care of them. Come on, you pious people. They don't deserve my forgiveness. You're, are you agreeing with that? Okay, all right. You can't trust God that God's got to take care of. Now, how many of y'all, when it comes to you, you want mercy? But when it comes to them, you want justice. <laughs> Is that not the way that works sometimes? Man, love changes our heart to, to have them, you know, want them to have mercy from God. But for us to have the same mercy, we've got to have faith to put it in God's hands, to trust that God's a big enough God to do to them and to me whatever needs to be done as a result of this conflict. It takes faith. You need to forgive somebody, man. It isn't putting them out of your head. It's a matter of saying, God, I need more faith. I need faith to trust you that you're going to take care of this and not let me get burned again. Or if I do get burned, let me handle this the right way. Or whatever you want to do, because when I gave my life to you, I gave my life to you. I'm your servant. It's not my life anymore. Got to have faith. Got to have faith. The possible. So look at this. Now, this next part of the story real quick, you're going to be like, I was blown away when I saw that this actually went with forgiveness. All right. So the disciples are hearing, I got to forgive. Dude, I need faith. I can't do this without faith. And, and so the Lord answered, and he said, look at this, man. If you had faith even as small as a mustard seed. Now, how many of y'all have heard that mustard seed thing, right? And how many of you have heard it applied so many ways? Well, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you can take that pavilion and throw it in the ocean. You can't do it. You must not have enough faith. No, that's not what this is talking about. It's talking in context about forgiveness. It's almost like when James said, if you control your mouth, dude, you can control anything. If you can forgive, dude, that's a miracle. That's a pretty awesome thing. Lord answered and said, if you had faith even as small as a mustard seed, and he's not talking about the size, but he's talking about what your faith is in. When we forgive, who's our, what is our faith in? Is our faith in the fact that they're not going to do it again or the fact that God's in control? So what's your faith in? In order to forgive, what does your faith have to be in? It has to be in God. And if you have faith in God, even if it's as small as a mustard seed, it's enough if it's in the right thing. Right? Hey, you nurses, it never made, y'all have the bags hanging like next to the bed, right? And there's little tubes and you stick things in. What does it do? Does it just like blow like a fire hose through the whole body? It's dripping. How potent is a couple of drops of some of the drugs you throw in people? Pretty potent. Yeah, I've been knocked out by those before. Yeah, a couple of drops. A couple of drops of God is way better than a fire hose full of you. The Lord answered, if you had faith even as small as a mustard seed to trust God 
He said, you could say to this mulberry tree, this is awesome, I love this, this mulberry tree, may you be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Here's what we take out of it. Ooh, I want things to obey me. I want to tap into God's power and have power and have it obey me. And I want to be able to move things that aren't in the place where I want them to be moved. And we have it preached so many ways. But in the context of this, look what he says. You, for forgiveness, you have to have faith, a little bit of faith in God. And then you can say the mulberry tree. Now, the mulberry tree of that day had deep roots, had deep, strong roots. In fact, the people of that day said those mulberry trees, they thought they, they said they could live for 600 years. Now, whether they did or not, I don't know. But that's how deep and how strong those roots were. Anybody ever try to pull roots up? <laughs> Man, after the hurricane, when we got rid of all the pine trees, my wife and I, the, the, the guy before us planted right next to our house. For a year, I pickaxed pine tree roots, and my wife's pulling them up. Dude, these are deep, hard roots. But this mulberry tree are the hardest roots in the world to pull up. They go down deep and they're strong. They were permanent. He said, you could say to the mulberry, you could say to those deep roots, and I'm telling you what he's talking about is a deep root of bitterness. A deep root of bitterness that needs to be pulled up for forgiveness that you've been trying to pull up. And you can't pull it up. You need faith. And you need to ask God to give you the faith and the love to pull that deep root up. I don't know about you, but how many of y'all, again, I'm not talking about you guys, but how many of y'all know somebody, even a believer who's got deep roots of bitterness? And, and it would count even if you're talking about the person you saw in the mirror. Deep roots of bitterness. The only thing that's going to pull it up is faith that comes from love. You say this mulberry tree, man, may you be uprooted. If you've got faith in God, he can, and you can trust God to take care of whatever it is they did to you. You can say to that mulberry, you can say that deep root of bitterness, be uprooted, be thrown in the sea, and it would obey you. If what you're talking about is forgiveness, then you've got it in context of the scripture. If you're just trying to remove all the junk in your life that you don't want that's there, that's not what that scripture is talking about. And I'll tell you what, anybody ever seen true forgiveness? Karen, isn't that what you said that caused you to see the love of Christ? All the things you did to your husband in the first few years of marriage because of what, you were on drugs and you were drunk and all these things. And you're, you asked your husband, how can you still love me? And what did he answer you? Yeah, because I want to love you the way, the, uh, the way Christ loves you. And you saw that forgiveness, and, and it caused you to see God's forgiveness. And you guys, look at these two right here, man. Y'all look at their face. I'd make them stand up, but they change. They're in love. Because through faith, that bitter root from the mulberry tree got yanked up and thrown into the sea. You ever try to live with somebody and there's a deep root of bitterness? Got to get rid of that. In there. God's why God, that conflict is in your life to cause you to be more like Christ. Just look at what it says. Keeps on going. We're almost done. May the uprooted plan the sea and it would obey you. And then he gives him an illustration. He says, in case you think you're going to do something super special for me. Hey, let me ask you a question. Can we ever pay God back for what he's given us? No. We're his servant. He's the master. So in case you think you forgive that person, man, you are sitting on the throne right next to me because of that act. He said, let me, let me give you a little illustration. When a servant comes in from plowing, all right, we're the servant, and taking care of the sheep, which is hard work, does the master say, oh, come on in and sit down and relax? In a servant-master relationship, does that happen? No. What's the servant got to do now? He's done with his outdoor chores, so what's he going to do now? His indoor chores, because you're a servant. And, and he says, no. He says, prepare my meal. Put on your apron. Serve me while I eat. 
Then you can eat later after you're done serving. When are we done serving as a believer? When he takes us home. And when he takes, you're right. You said never. Who said never? Is that you, Gigi? Yeah. yeah. Oh, dude, I could have swore I heard your voice. All right. You have been 12. No, that would make her something else. No, I'm sorry. It was Charlie. <laughs> but, yeah. When God takes you home, then now we only have one desire, and that's to serve him for eternity. And, and we're, better, we're equipped to do that. So we never quit serving. But while we're here, that's what we're doing is we're serving him. And, and then he says, and then does the master say, thank the servant? Oh, hey, thanks for doing your job. Thanks for doing what, what's expected of you. Or, you know, thanks for doing what you were told to do. Does the master say that? No. He says, of course not. He doesn't do that. And in the same way, when you obey me, you should say we are unworthy or unprofitable servants who have simply done our duty. Let me explain that. So if you have an ungodly master who expects you to do a job, and, and you do the job for that ungodly master, um, and, and uh, you know, at the end, is, is he going to thank you for doing it? And do you quit working because he doesn't thank you for doing it? Well, we've created a world where, where we, we do. We switch jobs. We do all this stuff. But the fact is, is you're just doing it. And, and so anyways, what he's saying, if a servant will serve an ungodly master in this way, how much more should we serve the father who we are servant to, but the father who has promised to reward us richly? If we will serve our boss saying, how much more, who's paying you a paycheck, how much more should we serve the one who's given us eternal life? And the way he said in this, you can serve him is by forgiving. Pulling up that deep root of bitterness wherever God has put it in your life today. Whatever it is, because that deep root of bitterness is holding you back. Man, and look what he says. He said, we're supposed to come to him in the, in the idea that we are unworthy. Or the word is actually unprofitable. So profit is when you make more than what you spend, right? Isn't that what a profit is? Like profitable is when you make more than what you spend. So let me ask you a question. Can we be more valuable to the God than what it costs for him to save us? No. That's what he's talking about. When you come to him, you can never stop serving. Say, I've done enough for you. We have now, we have now broke even. In fact, God, I think you now owe me a little. <laughs> In fact, it's all, you could give him everything, and it's like right there. And all he's trying to do is say, man, if, that, if people serve bosses with this, and they'll serve that way. Why won't you serve the master who's given you everything? And the way we serve him is through, is through forgiveness in this. So real super quick in the end this up, I just want to share with you the most Christ-like thing we can do is forgive. How was it that Jesus on the cross, what was the very first thing he said on the cross as he's hanging there after they beat the snot out of him? Isaiah says that he was beaten beyond recognition. What did he say? Yeah. No one can do to you more than what they did to Christ. You. No one can do to you more than what you've done to Christ. And he's forgiven you of it all. And one of the greatest ways to show the world who Christ is is to forgive others in this. Paul and Barnabas didn't do too good of a job in this story. But it happened later. 
They both were valuable to each other. Mark was valuable to Peter and to Paul and all this. They were valuable to each other because later they forgave. And I think it was from this story that a lot of things they teach us about forgiveness and about reconciliation. I think they learned a lot from this because they didn't handle it quite right. So again, if you know you need to forgive somebody, man, I think you need faith. If you don't want to forgive somebody, you need love. But if you love and you say, I want to forgive them, but I just can't, then you need faith. And I think that's what God wanted me to hear myself today. And he wanted me to share with you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that if there's somebody here that um, knows that they have a, a deep bit of root, or, uh, a root of bitterness towards somebody. They know that all that's got to happen is the enemy's got to put that person in front of them, put that face in their head. Um, remind them of the situation. Remind them of, of whatever it is that caused it. Father, he can distract them so well. Discourage them. Depress them. Um, Father, I pray that if we do have deep roots of bitterness, even if they're shallow roots that are just starting to grow, I pray that you would speak to us about that today. You would reveal those to us. And I pray that, Father, you would have the conversation with us. First, to forgive those people because of love, the love that you've showed to us. If we don't want to forgive them, Father, I pray that you would work on us and give us the love to forgive them. And once we have the love but we don't have the ability, I pray then you would give us the faith to trust that you've got it all under control and we will surrender that to you and we will follow you. Father, I pray that if there's somebody here that's never given their love to Christ, They've never given their life to Christ. Father, I pray that today you would give them the desire and ability to surrender everything they know about themselves, everything they know about you. I pray, Father, that, um, that you would help them realize they're sinners. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, which is perfection. And that the wages of sin is eternal death, separation from you. But you gave us a gift of eternal life through Christ. And if we have the ability to believe that what he did on the cross is sufficient to pay for our sins and take them away, then we trust you. And we not only have eternal life, but we get to represent you while we're here. Father, I pray if there's someone who doesn't know they're going to heaven, someone who doesn't know they have your power while they're here on this planet, Father, I pray you give them a desire they can't refuse to surrender everything they know about themselves, everything they know about you. But Father, I pray that you would go deep in our lives and pull up those bitter roots as I know as those bitter roots come up that we would be more like you and that's the purpose of conflicts conflicts are coming but if we see them from your perspective we go through them with your presence and your power we will become more like you and we can show the world who you are Father, I can't think of a thing this world needs more as it's so divided than forgiveness. I can't think of a more powerful miracle, more powerful testimony for the world to see than a great big God giving us the love and the faith to forgive. It's, it'd be undeniable. I think it would make a tremendous impact. And that's what we want to do for you. I pray for these things in Jesus' name.